Und ich sage, Slong, ich schlägt dir. Ich sage, ich renne bei mir. Warte, ich auch. That's all. In January 1862, a ship called the Angelita ran aground in Dunmanus Bay, County Cork. It was the first ship to be lost by the English shipowner Thomas H. Ismay. By coincidence, it was the same year that an even more famous Ismay was born, the man who, 50 years later, presided over the loss of probably the most famous ocean liner of all time, the Titanic. The events of that night and the one crucial step that he took cost this modest, shy man his career, his status, and, to some extent, his sanity. The West of Ireland is part of the legend, where he lived for the rest of his life, haunted by guilt. His name was J. Bruce Ismay, and this is his story. Iceberg, right ahead. Oh, my God. Hard to starboard. Stop. Full speed astern. Mr. Murder, what was that? It... it was an iceberg, sir. <laughs> he must have dressed in a hurry. No one away! If you get the head out of that, I'll be able to do something. You want me to lower away quickly? You'll help me drown the whole lot Do you know, I think that man's somebody very important. Do you know who I think it is? That man was J. Bruce Ismay. There are varying accounts of his actions and behaviour between 11.45pm on the 14th of April, 1912 and 1.40 a.m. on the following day, when 1,522 people lost their lives on the ship that he effectively owned. He certainly didn't behave as was expected of the owner of the largest ocean liner ever. Angus Ismay Cheap is a great-grandson of Bruce Ismay's. Well, the strange thing is that the Titanic, it, the, the incident was never really referred to I think my, my great-grandmother, um, Mrs. Bruce Esme, who died when I was 13, made a, a sort of a house rule that um, the Titanic would never be spoken of as a means of protecting my great-grandfather from further hurt and distress. And this must have carried on with my, my grandmother and her family. And it wasn't until I was perhaps... Um, uh, adult, that I recall the 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 um, disaster being spoken of. In any great disaster, there is public demand for a scapegoat. 
and Bruce Esmay was the most convenient subject to assume the role of scapegoat. Maybe Bruce Ismay was just displaying basic human weakness in a crisis. At any rate, the next 25 years of his life were to be totally different from the first 49. Less than six months after the Titanic disaster, he'd bought a house in Connemara. A local man, Michal Odonica, worked for him. <laughs> Our brother, nobody spoke to him. They were afraid to talk to him about it. I haven't heard of one who did, not one man in Connemara. But the people of Connemara couldn't give a damn if he'd left each and every ship in England. Well, how much long have you been doing this? How much? Boy, that's my little rogue. Well, he's a boy. Very well, escape he did, and I suppose it was God sent him in this direction. The American newspapers had it that he settled in the most remote place in the world. A lot of people read that. They were saying that he was lying low, but by dad, if he was, we did well out of him anyway, wonderfully well. The Ismay family's roots were in Cumbria, in a small town called Maryport. Thomas H. Ismay, Bruce's father, founded the Oceanic Steam Navigation Company in September 1869. It later became known the world over as the White Star Line. The first list of shareholders included Edward James Harland, engineer and shipbuilder, and Gustav William Wolfe, shipbuilder. Harland and Wolfe were commissioned to build a series of ships for Ismay's company. The first of these was the Olympic, the second and last, the Titanic. Bruce Ismay was reared according to Victorian tradition. He attended a number of schools, including Harrow. Wilton J. Oldham, author of The Ismay Line, has this to say about his first day at work in his father's office. Please inform the new office boy that he is not to leave his hat and coat lying about in my office. Surely he wasn't as stern as that, my own father. Please inform the new office boy that he is not to leave his hat and coat lying about in my office. At the turn of the century, competition was fierce between two rival shipping companies, White Star and Cunard. Cunard, who owned the Lusitania and the Mauritania, seemed to be ahead. White Star's answer was to go for comfort rather than speed. They decided to build a series of giant ships, the largest ever to be built. They were to be the last word in luxury. Lord Peary, the chairman of Harland and Wolfe, and Bruce Ismay decided this in 1907, reportedly over coffee and cigars in Belgravia in London. The Titanic's keel was laid on the 31st of March, 1909. The hull number was 390904. It was no mere coincidence that this number, reflected, spells out one of the most abiding slogans of Ulster Unionism. Of course, the last thing anybody thought in 1909, least of all the 30,000 or so that worked on it, was that hull number 390904 would 
a mere three years later, be lying two and a half miles below the North Atlantic. From then until the present day, thousands of titanic buffs the world over have studied every detail of the story. Paddy Clark is one of them. Everything was stacked against the Titanic. Normally the Atlantic would have been fairly wild at that time of year and had there been an iceberg there, the breakers would have crashed against it and the lookout would have seen these. But this was a particular time of the night when, for the first time in years, the Atlantic was completely calm, calm as a mill pond, some of them said, and they hadn't seen it in their lifetime previously. So there were no breakers to be seen against the base of the iceberg. Another uh, appalling oversight was that the binoculars, which the lookout people should have had, had been somehow mislaid at Southampton before it got away. So uh, Fleet and Lee, the two lookouts, uh, just depended on their unassisted eyesight to see the iceberg. Uh, now, the Titanic at that time was travelling at about 22 and a half knots, which would be about 25 miles an hour. And for a vessel weighing uh, 46,328 tonnes, this was very little time for it to manoeuvre. Now, I should mention that the Titanic had 16 watertight compartments. Now, these had one disadvantage in that they weren't sealed at the top. So if in a, a, an accident situation the Titanic was struck broadside, they allowed for the fact that had two of these watertight compartments been flooded, it would have remained perfectly in order. And, of course, in that case, the Titanic would have remained level. Now, they also designed it that more than two, actually three watertight compartments could be floated, and the Titanic would still remain afloat. They thought it was possible, even, that with four watertight compartments floated, it could stay afloat for certainly quite some time and allow any ship to get there to rescue the passengers. But what happened was five and there was a leakage in the sixth watertight compartment. So it was a mathematical certainty that the ship was going to go down. I think it's important to try and put oneself into the context of the time. Um, the Titanic was quite literally the last word in, in shipbuilding. Um, she was built to extreme specifications, and the engineering applied was at the very outside edge of, of technology. And here she was in the middle of the night, in the middle of the ocean, apparently sinking. I think if one imagines one's, one's feeling of, 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 of bewilderment, really, and um, if one imagines <laughs> rather more directly my great-grandfather, who must have very quickly realised, and certainly much more quickly than... Um, many of the other passengers, how serious the damage to the ship was. And I think this must, to some extent, explain the, the way in which he, he reacted to the, uh, um, the events. I mean, we have, we have many uh, contemporary accounts of the wonderful work he did filling the lifeboats and generally instilling a, a sense of urgency amongst the... Uh, other passengers. He was a very silent man. He never said very much. He talked to people, but not, not to a great uh, lot, you know. And he was very, uh, but very down to earth, you know. Quite, very quiet man. You think he was a man that uh, that was uh, uh, worrying about something serious, you know. He never talked. He never used to be in a, 
huge laughing mood, you know, or anything like that. But we were very nice to the people and everybody that had any do with them. My father liked him because he used to treat him very well. And, of course, my uncle was his, his, his loyal, loyal friend because he used to take him out and give him give him treat him well, you know, and... Christmas time then, and before they'd go away, they'd always give them a lot of gifts. As the ice warnings came in uh, from various ships, one or two from the Californian, which was the ship that was very near them, uh, these went, of course, through the wireless operator, Jack Phillips, and he processed them onto the bridge where they should have been acted on by the people up there. Now, the sixth ice warning, which caused a bit of trouble because at this stage, Jack Phillips was getting a bit irritated with the Californian for insisting on sending these ice warnings. The Californian was stopping the ice very near the Titanic, and he used an expression which sounds a bit like shut up to uh, Cyril Evans, who was the wireless operator on the Californian. And Evans was a bit annoyed about this. But this last ice warning was sent up to Captain Smith, who put it in his pocket. And while he was dining later with Bruce Ismay, who was the managing director, of course, of the company, he said, took this out and said, did you see the ice warning? And Ismay looked at it and put it in his pocket. Had you no curiosity to ascertain whether or not you would be travelling in a region in which ice was reported? I had not. If you were approaching ice in the night, it would be desirable, would it not, to slow down? I uh, am not a navigator. Answer the question. Isn't that right? I'm not a navigator. I was the owner of the Titanic, not the captain. But, of course, he's not here. Surely the only reason for going fast in a region of ice would be to get out of danger as soon as possible? Uh, yeah, yes, to get out of the region before, for instance, fog came down. Then you're saying it would be better for a ship's captain to go as fast as he could through an ice region at night? I say he was justified in going fast to get out of it. If the conditions were suitable and right uh, and the weather clear. I think we understand. Now, Ismay himself seems to have, in theory, of course, well, in actual fact, Captain Smith was the senior man of the ship, but Bruce Ismay was the chairman. And he did have an influence, whether people liked it or not. He fussed about the place, generally looking at things, but as soon as the impact occurred, he was then in bed, and he put a suit on over his pyjamas and put on slippers and went up on deck, and he began to generally making use of himself, really, waving his hands around and shouting lower away and whatnot. And eventually one of the officers, who didn't actually know who he was, told him to clear off and leave them alone. And he did do, very meekly, apparently. Uh, so he later then got on the last lifeboat to leave from the starboard side, which is the side where the impact had occurred. Now, there were many stories came out about Bruce Ismay that he had jumped into a lifeboat dressed as a woman. Indeed, that was mentioned in relation to several people and one of, a number of them were maliciously spread. For instance, one was spread about a, a politician and it wasn't true. Another was spread about a, a passenger who had refused to give a particular newspaper reporter an interview and he put that in about him. Uh, and there's no evidence really that anyone went away dressed as a woman. One young boy 
in one of the lifeboats had a shawl over his head but possibly to protect himself and this again would have been spotted and these stories were greatly exaggerated in the American press but Bruce Ismay uh, was there when this last lifeboat was leaving on the starboard side and one of the last lifeboats to get away it, there was plenty of space in that lifeboat and he asked if he could get in now it's probable that the officer there didn't know who he was and he said yes get in so he got in and of course naturally it was felt that he shouldn't have done that after all he knew quite well that there were quite an, a lot of women and children there and many other passengers and his duty should have been to stay to stay there but then his defence counsel said well had he done that all he would have done was added one more casualty to the number of those drowned uh, but still people didn't like it Bruce's May had inherited his father's white star line when he was 37 less than three years later he finally gave in to a takeover bid by the American magnate J.P. Morgan, though he remained the chairman of White Star. The new combine was called International Mercantile Marine. Michael Davy, author of the most recent book on the Titanic, The Full Story of a Tragedy, devotes a whole chapter to Bruce Ismay. He quotes an appreciation written in the London Times after his death. It said that his outward appearance, taciturn and austere, had been misleading. He shrank from exposing to the world the kindness and sympathy that were in him, and only those close to him were aware of his innumerable kindly and generous actions. But these words were written 25 years later. Bruce Ismay had already been judged by what he did at 1.40am on Sunday the 15th of April, 1912. I couldn't believe it. The Titanic sending distress flares. They never believed it. An iceberg and serious damage. Would you like some ice, sir? It's all over the deck. The boat was there. There were no more passengers on the deck. As the boat was in the act of being lowered away, I got into it. I suppose it was the step that caused my ruin. But the British inquiry exonerated me, didn't it? Mr. Ismay, after rendering assistance to many passengers, found sea collapsible, the last boat on the starboard side, actually being lowered. No other people were there at the time. There was room for him and he jumped in. Had he not jumped in? he would merely have added one more life, namely his own, to the number of those lost. The fact that he escaped is, I, in some respects, incidental. Um, it was very difficult indeed to persuade people to leave the apparent warmth and safety of the ship for a lifeboat. And if one could imagine oneself being cast adrift in mid-Atlantic, on a freezing cold night, in a tiny open boat. I think one might possibly have um, felt the same. And at the very 11th hour, when the deck, the boat deck was clear, um, my grandfather, possibly in a reflex action, jumped into the, the very last boat, I believe. 
Now, there were 16 lifeboats in davits, which are small cranes, and these had been specially designed by a firm called Wellen in Sweden. Now, what came up, of course, afterwards and caused much uh, controversy was that these davits could, were specially designed and they could accommodate from one to four lifeboats each, whereas, in fact, they only carried one lifeboat each at the time on the Titanic. So there were 16 lifeboats, 14 of them capable of carrying 65 people and two of them capable of carrying 40 people. In addition, there were four extra collapsible lifeboats stowed away and these could carry 47 people each. But all this would have been totally inadequate uh, to cope with the number of passengers on the Titanic. Oddly enough, it was based on a Board of Trade regulation that ships of 10,000 tonnes and over should have 16 lifeboats. But it didn't add on to these number of lifeboats as the tonnages increased. Lifeboats, yes, the lifeboats. I know there weren't enough, but damn it, we were running a shipping line. In relation to the class of people who got away, it's hard not to feel that the third-class passengers, which included the Irish by and large, got a bad deal. Uh, They weren't specifically inhibited from coming up, but they were given no assistance, and in some cases the ways up for them were locked, which would have normally been the case anyway, but no one seems to have been assigned in the confusion to unlock these, and it seems that they didn't worry too much about that. Certainly the percentage of uh, passengers saved in the first class was high uh, as compared to the third class. One thing that struck me was, as the unfortunate third class passengers came up, uh, they were met by a priest. These would be mainly Irish. And he said, which must have been a, a terrible sentence, he said, prepare to meet your God. And they didn't know what this was about. They'd only been having a great time a short while before. And he said, the ship is sinking. But they said, there are boats. And he said, but they're all gone. Ismay's boat was pretty well filled. It did pick up people in the water all right. He seems to have adopted a low profile, certainly in far removed from his activities uh, on the ship where he was running around ordering people and waving his hands around. He just seems to have slumped there and felt that his whole world had collapsed, as undoubtedly it had. Uh, but some of these people, though, in the water, were. V- it was very sad to read about it. They came up swam up to a boat and said could they get on board and they said no you can't you'll swamp us all and they just said thank you very much and swam off and died I understand that my behaviour aboard the Titanic and subsequently aboard the Carpathia has been very severely criticised I want to court the fullest inquiry and I place myself unreservedly in the hands of yourself and your colleagues to ask any questions in regard to my conduct So far as the Carpathia is concerned, sir, 
When I got on board this ship, I stood with my back against the bulkhead, and somebody came up and said, Will you not go into the saloon and get something to drink, some soup? No, I said. I really do not want anything at all. Well, do go and get something. No, if you leave me alone, I will be very much happier here. He was obsessed with the idea and kept repeating that he ought to have gone down with the ship because he found that some women had gone down. I told him there was no such reason. I told him a very great deal. I tried to get the idea out of his head, but he was taken with it. The press in England and America tried Bruce Ismay as in a kangaroo court. He was a scapegoat for scurrilous hacks. To hold your place in the ghastly face of death on the sea at night is a seaman's job. But to flee with the mob is an owner's noble right. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. The case against him and the White Star Line in the matter of the lifeboats is much more serious. If Ismay and the company had accepted the plans for more lifeboats rather than opting for more deck space, as they did, nearly all 1,522 lives could have been saved. It could be said that the Titanic's victims owe their debts to the company's greed. But as we've heard, everything was stacked against the Titanic on that night 75 years ago. Nobody will ever agree as to which was the most decisive factor that caused such a loss of life. The speed, the weather, the late sighting, inadequate lifeboats, the Californian, perhaps only nine miles away, not responding. Both the British and American inquiries apportioned a small measure of blame, but doubt about certain people remained. South Connemara was probably the one area of the world where Bruce Ismay's integrity remained intact. Well, it was kind of said that he 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 let the that he was that he let the people get drowned, you know, that he didn't uh, that he could have done more. But uh, you know, if people that didn't understand about ships, they wouldn't think it that way, because a ship a ship out in the ocean there, you're out, you're out. There's nothing to help you anywhere, and you do the best you can. Everybody does the best they can. Save yourself if you can, and save everybody else as well. That's the theory. But um, uh, people were a bit sad about that. You know, they didn't you know that was they got that bad name. That's why he had to. That's why he took up bought this place at all. I believe in Castle. to get out of the way and get into some uh, some uh, place where he wouldn't be disturbed by anybody. You know. He was very sad about that. And he never talked about the Titanic? Oh, he never talked about that. He never talked about the Titanic or never anything. My father and I was very, very willing with him. And, well, he used to have the, the local priests and the doctors always. He'd always give them a day's fishing. I could tell you some funny stories about that too, but they won't. <laughs> Tommy Ridge, Mary MacDonough and Michal O'Donoghue remember Bruce Ismay and his family as the people in the big house. The Esmers were over here, coming out to Castle Lodge, since I remember, when I was going to school. That it'd be, uh, oh, I'm 75 now, so it must be a few years back, you know, when I went to school, I was five. And I school, I was five. 
But anyhow, uh, uh, they used to come there for three months every year, you know, this season, from from May, May to to the end of the fishing season, you know, and they were very devoted to the fishing. The fishing every day if the weather was possible at all. And at that time, there was any amount of fish in the river. Near the circle tad the wheel. They knew nothing about him round here, because he wasn't to talk much. You see, he'd just talk about his business. He'd be out here now. He wasn't a believer. He'd just be here every Sunday, trimming the hedge with his clippers. Nobody would go near him. He'd make a heap of the cuttings on the pathway just there. But this Sunday, one of the local men went down to take some of the bigger trees away. And he was asked whether he'd been to Mass. And sure, I suppose, Jack said he had been. Well, don't you know it's Sunday, and no Catholic is supposed to work on Sunday, he says. Leave them there, he says, until tomorrow. We used to go out in the boat in those days, himself and herself, and I used to be with my own father. We mightn't even have gone to Sunday Mass. We used to connive together and pretend we'd been to Mass, but devil a Mass I'd gone to. I'd be back in your area, blind drunk, down in Terry's pub. We'd know nothing about the Mass. And my father would say, if anybody questions you in the boat about it, say you have been to Mass. If you hadn't been to Mass, they'd be reluctant to go out with you. When they come across, they'd always visit the schools. Well, Mrs. Esmond did it. And she brought, you know, sweets and biscuits and all these nice little things to the children. And so we thought she was, she was our lady from heaven, you know. She was, uh, you know, it used to be lovely to get all these nice things. But you, you wouldn't get in any shops here, you know. You wouldn't get the... Well, they'd be in Galway, probably, but not out here. Mm. Uh, the shops out here were badly stocked that time for, you know, that kind of stuff, you know. They only stopped the main thing. But anyway, they were, they loved them. And, uh, well, the gillies that worked for them, they thought they were almighty. <laughs> and they used to send them, they'd all send them a goose for Christmas. Well, I'm sure they had more geese over there for Christmas. And... Uh, in the goose, there'd be that bottle of putty thrown in, you know, stuffed into the goose, and there was no, the customs weren't so strict because uh, it was a British regime at that time, you see, and there was, there was no, uh, there was no uh, barriers at all, you know. But the geese used to go, uh, these geese used to go, and I, 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 I had one of the servants say that so many geese there, they didn't know what to do with them. In, in, in London, the house in London, they used to be giving them away themselves because they couldn't, they couldn't use them, you know. But that was the main thing they had here was a goose, you know, to get easily come by because they used to rear their own geese. <laughs> One day that I was over, I was going through the lodge with the um, men from Coslo, P.J. Flaherty, and uh, Bruce's man was sitting down reading in a dick chair. And... Um, he asked me, was this the first time in, that I seen the lodge? And I said yes, and he asked him to show me around. And there was a, a spiral uh, staircase in it. That all you had to do was press a button and the stairs had come down to go up stairs. And um, he was very friendly man, very nice man. But there was a lot of thoughts around the place. They were really very, very nice people. 
Mrs. Ismay was very good to the children in Brazzaville. She used to bring them cases of new clothes and shoes and even to apples. She used to bring the bags of apples to the school. And um, the, um, the son, one time that we had Jesuit priest in with us, uh, they went over to see him and he gave them a day each on the river and on the lakes fishing. And they came back with loads of salmon. In Shamirudit, Nilan Rostivi had no patrona, Agustin Shakanchetas had a valuary. People used to come here collecting money and he went and donated five pounds for boat races in Kastla here. Whatever couple came, and I know who they were, looking for money for the races, he gave them five pounds. Sure, of course, five pounds in those days was incredible, an amazing amount of money. And he was told that the races would be down below here, and that's why he was happy to put money into it. But when the day came, the races were transferred to Kogiel. And he said to the stewards that if anybody intended in future to come looking for sponsorship, not to bother coming past the gate. He said that he'd been lied to. You see, the wife and himself and all the servants were ready to go down to the hillside there to watch the boats coming and going in the races. Well, I think he was a man of immense ability. Um, he did not find it easy, from what I can deduce, um, from what I've read and um, from what I've heard from um, members of the family, to communicate freely, um, certainly in public. He had a rather, I think, autocratic and brusque manner. But as we all know, shy people who may feel a bit unsure of themselves are inclined to try and disguise their shyness by appearing to be over self-confident and commanding in dealing with other people. It was while still at Kastler in 1936 that Bruce Ismay's final illness began. So he left the lodge never to return. Back at his London home, he underwent an operation to remove his right leg. He spent the next year as mobile as he possibly could by the use of pulleys and gadgets that he'd rigged up. He died on October the 14th, 1937, aged 74, and was buried in Putney Vale. There's an entry for Bruce Ismay in the British Dictionary of National Biography. It doesn't mention the Titanic. Costello Lodge has had a number of owners since, including another ship owner. Jack Toohey lives there now. This is the, the memorial that uh, Mrs Ismay put up to Bruce, and I'll read it for you if I can. It's... Uh, he loved all wild and solitary places where we taste the pleasure of believing what we see is boundless as we wish our souls to be. Say, ten years I was with him. My father was with him, you know. My father's with him all the time. They're all gone anyway. He's one of the best. 
Look at all the trees he planted there. Most of them is down anyways. That one should be going down. So. Mr. Ismay, the man we saw on the boat deck earlier, the owner of the line, seems to have gone very quiet. Mr. Ismay? Mr. Ismay? Mr. Ismay? What a moment it was. Not enough lifeboats. Never thought she'd go down, though. All those people lost. I couldn't even watch it disappear. I'm just thinking of a poem written about me, yes. Bruce Hismay's soliloquy. They said I got away in a boat and humbled me at the inquiry... I tell you, I sank as far that night as any hero as I sat shivering on the dark water. I turned to ice to hear my costly life go thundering down in the pandemonium of prams, pianos, sideboards, winches, boilers, bunting and shredded ragtime. Now I hide in a lonely house behind the sea where the tide leaves broken toys and hat-boxes silently at my door. The showers of April, flowers of May mean nothing to me, nor the late light of June, when my gardener describes to strangers how the old man stays in bed on seaward mornings after nights of wind and will see no one, repeat, no one. Then it is I drown again with all those dim, lost faces I never understood. My poor soul screams out in the starlight. Heart breaks loose and rolls down like a stone. Include me in your lamentations. <laughs> 